Even if you don't know the details behind his crimes, you've probably heard the name Ted Kaczynski, aka the Unabomber. Ted was a child prodigy, a mathematical genius, but also a domestic terrorist, a murderer that wreaked havoc on innocent people in the U.S. for decades, a man who despised technology, industrialism, and the experts advancing it, whose rage continued to build as he isolated himself from society in a small cabin in the woods. You probably saw Ted Kaczynski in the news recently, and after seeing it myself, I realized I didn't know a lot about him or his crimes. So in this week's episode, we're going to go down that very, very deep rabbit hole. By the way, I will be quoting a lot from Liz Whale's book, Hunting the Unabomber, published in 2020, so if you hear me reference Whale's writing, that's the book I'm talking about. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, you can leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or become a Patreon member where you'll get bonus stuff every month. Also, by the time you're listening to this, I will have launched my very first round of quote-unquote merch, which is just a sticker I designed myself a while back. There is a limited quantity, and it's probably not going to appeal to everyone, but I do hope that y'all like it. Anyways, let's get started. On May 24th, 1978, a woman came across a package wrapped in brown craft paper. It was on the ground next to a car, parked at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus. The package had 10 stamps and was addressed to a professor in New York. This package hadn't gone through the USPS, so the woman decided to contact what appeared to be the original sender, Buckley Christ, a professor at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Professor Christ told the woman the package wasn't his and became very suspicious as to how something like that could even happen. He called campus police, who retrieved the package from the woman's apartment and brought it back to the tech building on Northwestern's campus. Professor Christ had an office in this building, and the plan was to figure out who the package really belonged to so it could be returned. However, the following day, a public safety officer began opening the package when, suddenly, it exploded. Fortunately for this man, the pipe bomb detonated in a direction away from him, and he walked away with minor injuries. The ATF took over the investigation and determined that the parts used to make the bomb were scraps that people could buy just about anywhere, making it much more difficult to track down the culprit. They also determined that if the bomb had detonated as the creator intended, someone would have died. On top of that, the intended receiver didn't know Professor Christ, and vice versa. Fast forward nearly a year later to May 9, 1979. Package number two makes its way to Northwestern University Tech Building again. It's wrapped in the same brown craft paper, but this time no address is written. It's sat on a table in front of numerous mail slots reserved for graduate students and faculty. In the mid-afternoon, a graduate student in the civil engineering department spotted the package and tried to open it out of curiosity. As soon as he did, the package exploded. The student was hospitalized and treated overnight for burns and lacerations. The ATF agent assigned to investigate this bomb and the one prior transferred to another department soon after. And because of that, those bombs were basically forgotten about because no one in the ATF logged them into a formal data system. Six months later, package number three made its way through a postal facility in Chicago and into a cargo pod between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. On November 11th, the package was loaded onto American Airlines Flight 444. Passengers were mostly businessmen, whose destination was just outside Washington, D.C. While cruising above 30,000 feet, the 92 passengers on board started to panic when they heard a loud bang before the cabin began filling with smoke. 
Pilots made an emergency landing just minutes before the fire hit the hydraulic system, which would have made them lose virtually all control of the plane. Eighteen passengers were treated for smoke inhalation, but fortunately no one was severely injured. The first two bombs at Northwestern University weren't widely reported on, and I personally couldn't find a newspaper article about it from the archives. However, bomb number three quickly captured the nation's attention, and the FBI finally got involved. This is how Whale described the bomb retrieved from the plane's cargo. Lab technicians determined the bomb had been built using a large tin juice that housed an explosive main charge comprised of smokeless powder and a variety of chemicals commonly used in the manufacture of pyrotechnics, such as firecrackers. The device was hidden inside a homemade wooden box, measuring 7.5 inches by 9.58 inches with a lid hinged at the rear. The box had been wrapped in about five layers of brown craft paper. The primitive pipe bomb inside had been assembled using a wooden dowel, four C-cell batteries, and various types of tapes, solder, and wire. Examiners were not able to determine who the package had been addressed to because part of the wrapping had been destroyed by the explosion and subsequent fire. In the summer of the following year, a letter was delivered to the home of 60-year-old Percy Wood in Lake Forest, Illinois. Percy was named president of United Airlines two years prior, and this letter to him was signed by someone claiming to be Enoch W. Fisher, who informed Percy that an important package would be arriving soon. This package, the writer claimed, contained a book of great social significance that was also being sent to a number of prominent individuals in the Chicago area. Days later, on June 10th, Percy was alone in his kitchen when he began unwrapping said package. This is a quote from what the Chicago Tribune printed a couple days later. The device, concealed in a package, exploded when he began to unwrap the parcel. Witnesses said that Wood, bleeding from his left hand and with burns on his hand and neck, ran to a neighbor's house where police and firemen were called. Officials took him to Lake Forest Hospital, where he was reported in good condition, suffering burns and lacerations on his face, body, left hand, and left leg. Damage to the two-story red brick, colonial-style home was confined to the kitchen, according to police. One policeman described the kitchen after the explosion as a mess. The chief of the Lake Forest Police said the package contained some type of pipe bomb, end quote. It was revealed shortly after that someone had hollowed out a copy of the book Ice Brothers and placed the pipe bomb inside. When Percy opened the lid of this unusual-looking book, that's when the bomb detonated. The person who had mailed a letter days prior had given a fake name and return address, and the package didn't have any postage, suggesting that it had been hand-delivered. Other items inside the package that puzzled authorities was a copy of an article by the Chicago Sun-Times, dated June 3, 1980 and an illustration showing an unemployed person feeding pigeons in a park by a famous editorial cartoonist named John Fischetti. The article apparently expressed concern about genetic engineering. This attack on the president of United Airlines in combination with the explosion on Flight 444 months prior prompted the FBI to take this investigation more seriously and start poking around for more evidence and clues. That's when they finally learned about the two bombs delivered to Northwestern in 78 and 79. When the FBI compared the parts used in all four bombs, they learned that all the parts were nearly identical, and in this moment they realized one person could be behind this series of bombs. It was relatively quiet for 18 months until a secretary at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, was severely injured after opening a package. It was meant to be opened by a computer scientist at the university, Patrick Fisher who was out of town when it was delivered. On May 5th, 1982, Jane Smith opened the package, and just as she lifted the lid of a cigar box, it exploded. 
She suffered lacerations and burns to her chest, arms, and hands that were so severe she was hospitalized for three weeks. It was shortly after this incident the FBI would learn about a packaged bomb delivered to the University of Utah's College of Business. On October 8, 1981, a maintenance man was cleaning a classroom on the third floor when he saw it sitting on a desk. He thought the package was suspicious and reported it to authorities. While waiting for them to arrive, a student slightly moved the package, but it failed to detonate. ATF agents and members of a bomb squad arrived and determined the gasoline bomb was safe. Unfortunately, lab techs for the ATF believe the device was non-functional and probably a hoax. And because no one was injured or killed, news of this device failed to reach the FBI until after Jane Smith was nearly killed. So now, in total, there's been six bombs, and bomb number seven would be delivered just two months later, on July 2nd. Professor Angelikos found the package in the fourth floor coffee room in Corey Hall on the University of California, Berkeley's campus. Around 7.49 a.m., Angelikos picked up what appeared to be an electrical device, and when he did, it blew up in his face. He suffered extensive bone and tendon damage in two fingers and underwent several surgeries. Angelikos was a professor of electrical engineering and computer science, specializing in electromagnetic theory at the time. Bomb number seven was a lot like number six, and according to author Whale, consisted of, quote, a one-gallon gas can on top of which was a homemade wooden box containing two D-sized batteries stripped of their aluminum cases and wired in a series to increase their voltage. One of the wires had been connected to a general electric household on-slash-off switch, which was then mounted to the box. Inside the gas can, the bomber had secured a steel pipe filled with smokeless powder, a flammable liquid believed to be gasoline and flash powder. Wooden plugs had been affixed to either end of the pipe with epoxy-type glue to create a seal, end quote. So two years passed with no bombs being attributed to this serial bomber, until 1985 arrives, when four bombs are delivered in a span of six months. On May 15th, a graduate student in electrical engineering opened a package in the UC Berkeley computer room. The Los Angeles Times reported, quote, A small white plastic box exploded Wednesday, shattering the right hand and arm of a 26-year-old Air Force captain who apparently tried to open it. The injured man was identified as John Hauser of the U.S. Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs, a graduate student taking special training at UC Berkeley. He underwent six hours of surgery. Doctors said later that Hauser will never regain full use of his right hand and arm and may lose sight in his left eye. The blast destroyed the small lab in Corey Hall. There was no fire, end quote. John Hauser was in the computer lab during finals week when he found a black three-ring binder. It was on top of some file boxes in front of a computer. He needed to move the box and binder to get to the computer, but figured he would look to see who the binder belonged to so he could return it. The department was small. He figured he'd probably know the owner if he found a name inside. As soon as he picked up the binder, the pipe bomb exploded. Apparently, the bomber had used a rubber band to attach the binder to the file box, prompting anyone who picked it up to suffer the blast. In a strange coincidence, Professor Angelikos was in his office at the time and heard the explosion. He rushed to John's aid. He used his own tie as a tourniquet to stop the bleeding from John's arm until paramedics arrived. This explosion shattered John's dream of becoming an astronaut, which he'd been working towards by earning a doctorate in electrical engineering. The FBI knew that their elusive serial bomber had returned, but the public was still in the dark about the investigation. A month later, bomb number eight was found at a division of the Boeing Company in Auburn, Washington. The factory produces various components of Boeing aircraft, including wings, landing gears, and other various plane parts. The package arrived on May 16th, but wasn't inspected until June 13th by a curious employee. 
The address of the sender was listed as a tool company in California, but the employee knew they'd never done business with that company. Also, the address that was written for them didn't exist. Concerned by this, the employee contacted police. After conducting an x-ray of the package, authorities determined there was a live bomb inside. It was safely diffused. Three months later, an assistant for a professor at the University of Michigan opened a package delivered to the psychology professor's home. The box was roughly one foot long, eight inches wide, and three inches tall, and weighed roughly as much as your average bag of sugar. A handwritten letter was attached to the outside, the author of which posed as a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Utah. They claimed they wanted the professor to review their dissertation, which was enclosed inside. From the explosion, Dr. James McConnell suffered temporary hearing loss, while his assistant, Nicholas Suino, suffered minor burns and shrapnel wounds. A couple weeks following this, on December 9th, the Detroit Free Press wrote about investigators trying to find a link between the UM parcel bomb and previous bombs delivered to universities. Federal investigators are trying to determine whether a package bomb mailed to a University of Michigan professor that exploded last month and injured an associate is related to similar other bombings around the country. A police detective for UC Berkeley said a task force of federal and state officials is comparing several bombing incidents around the country, dating back to the late 1970s. End quote. By this point, there had been 10 bombs, delivered or deliberately left around the country between 1978 and 1985, and the press was just now being informed there may be a connection between them all. The FBI and other investigative agencies were only a couple steps ahead. The FBI knew similar untraceable parts were being used in the bombs, but there was another small clue that pointed to one suspect. Whoever was creating these bombs was typing out the addresses on the same typewriter, a 1925 to 1930 Smith Corona typewriter with PICA-style type and 2.54 spacing. Also, in 1985, authorities finally settled on a name for this serial bomber. This is how Whale described it in her book. For a time, postal inspectors had been somewhat casually referring to their elusive suspect as the junkyard bomber because of his tendency to craft his devices from discarded items and scrap materials that could be found in a pile of demolition and construction debris, rather than store-bought items that could likely be traced back to him. That moniker would officially change once the crimes were linked, and the casual term junkyard bomber would be replaced as the FBI declared this to be Major Case 75, codenamed Unibomb, which stood for the UN and University, and the BO, an airline bomber. So two days after the Detroit Free Press published that article I just read, on December 11th, the Unabomber would send his deadliest explosive yet. 38-year-old Hugh Scratton walked out the back door of his computer shop in Sacramento around 12 in the afternoon. A few feet from the door and close to his car was what looked like a pile of scraps, wooden boards with sharp nails sticking out. Investigators believe Scratton attempted to move the object away from his car, and as soon as he did, the pile was disturbed, and the pipe bomb camouflaged underneath this debris detonated. The Sacramento Bee reported that there was not witnesses to the blast, but Whale wrote that, quote, two members of the U.S. Air Force were in the parking lot and raced over to help, only to realize that there wasn't anything they could do. Scratton was still alive, but his chest had been ripped open by the blast, and his heart was visible to the servicemen. It was impossible for them to do normal CPR, so they did what they could, comfort the dying man until the ambulance arrived. End quote. According to a spokesman for the coroner's office, the majority of Scratton's wounds were to his chest, lower right leg, and right arm. An autopsy revealed that his heart was perforated. Investigators couldn't say that Scruton was for sure the intended target, because his shop was in an outlet mall with 20 other stores. Plus, his sports car had been unlocked, and the Unabomber could have easily placed the device inside his car. 
Scruton was reportedly a well-liked and respected business owner. His stepfather said Scruton was, quote, the last person in the world you think would be threatened. He was above board in everything he did. It took hours for investigators to collect the shrapnel thrown from the bomb, some 150 yards away. Eight days later, investigators finally made a plea to the public for help in identifying the Unabomber. After a conference announcing their plea, Northeastern Pennsylvania's Tribune reported, quote, A serial bomber operating over the past seven years has set at least ten bombs around the nation, most of them at universities, injuring 19 people and killing a Sacramento businessman in the latest attack, authorities said. The bombings had appeared unrelated, until extensive fragments were gathered from the most recent explosion. They said the suspect may be a disgruntled university employee or someone displaced in his job by a computer noting that the devices were mailed to or placed at universities, computer facilities, and firms associated with aircraft, end quote. By the end of 1985, 11 different bombs led to the death of one individual and the injury of 20 others over the course of seven years. Before we get into the rest of the timeline, I want to talk about the man behind it all. Who is Ted Kaczynski? Theodore John Kaczynski was the first child born to Polish Americans in Chicago on May 22, 1942. Turk and Wanda Kaczynski were devastated when just nine months later, Ted had to be rushed to the hospital after he suffered a serious allergy reaction and developed hives. He remained there for a week, only seeing his parents twice for less than two hours total. Apparently, there were rigid regulations about when parents could and couldn't visit during that time. Wanda recalled this incident decades later. In those days, the way they treated children was barbaric. They didn't let the parents stay with the child. He was abandoned, as far as he knew. It just broke my heart when I would visit because he was lifeless, limp, end quote. After Ted was finally discharged, Wanda remembered, quote, I came to pick him up and he was like a little rag doll. He didn't look at me. He didn't respond in any way. It frightened the hell out of me. It was really a very painful episode in our lives. Ted's brother David, who would be born seven years after him, recalled the event as well. And of course, David wasn't alive yet when Ted was nine months old, so he's recalling their parents' experience. Apparently, after Ted was picked up from the hospital, quote, he became very unresponsive. He had been a smiling, happy, jovial kind of baby beforehand, and when he returned from the hospital, he showed little emotions for months. It was this experience, according to Wanda, that may have contributed to a pattern of isolation and mental health issues later in life. Ted Kaczynski, on the other hand, dismissed their perspectives completely and basically said they were exaggerating the story. But according to an anonymous aunt of Ted, she remembered him as an affectionate child. But something drastically shifted when his brother was born. She recalled, quote, Before David was born, Teddy was different. When they'd visit, he'd snuggle up to me. Then, when David was born, something must have happened. He changed immediately. Maybe we paid too much attention to the baby. End quote. There was another moment that stuck out in relation to David's birth. Children weren't allowed in the maternity ward, so seven-year-old Ted was left alone, while his father and grandparents went to see his newborn brother. When they all returned and were ready to take David home, Ted was crying in the lobby and deeply disturbed. And of course, this sort of event, nor any of the events I'm about to tell you, justify any of Ted's actions in the future, but it's just something that stuck out to his relatives when they wondered where it all went wrong, and what could cause a person to do something this horrible. From a very early age, Ted was clearly more advanced than other kids in terms of academics, but when it comes to making friends and socializing, Ted really struggled. In 1953, after the Kaczynskis moved to a middle-class neighborhood called Evergreen Park, Ted took an IQ test required for fifth graders. His score was so far above his classmates, Ted was pushed up to the seventh grade, and this made it even more difficult for him to make friends. 
and this is coming from Ted himself decades later. He said the decision to skip grades really stunted the development of his social skills. Neighbors recalled the Kaczynskis as a serious family that read books all the time. Wanda regularly read to both of her sons and took them out to see art and science museums. They were really focused on giving their children the best education possible, in and out of school. The difference between Ted and his brother was like night and day, though. Neighbors said David was outgoing, had lots of friends, and loved to play with anyone, while Ted acted like an old man, even as a child. He was a loner, and shut himself out from forming relationships. His parents' desire for him to be the smartest kid in school, and rewarding him with attention for that also may have played a role. Around the age of 10, Ted started obsessively reading books, but not your average books a child that age would be reading. He was specifically passionate about math and science, and on one camping trip with his family, he brought a volume of romping through mathematics from addition to calculus. It definitely wasn't what your average kid wants to read, but it made Ted happy, according to everyone around him. At age 12, he was beating full-grown adults at Scrabble, lecturing anyone who mispronounced a word, and once refused to talk to his aunt because, quote, she wouldn't understand me anyway. Ted would later write that at that point he felt like a genius stuck in a child's body, and those around him said Ted's feelings of superiority only further isolated him from developing deep emotional bonds with others. Once he entered Evergreen Park Community High School, it only got worse for him. He played the trombone in band and joined four different clubs, math club, coin club, biology club, and German club, but still failed to make any close friends. There were about 12 or so members in the math club, including Ted, who recalled him as immature and emotionally stunted. One member recalled, quote, Ted was technically very bright, but emotionally deficient. While the math club would sit around talking about the big issues of the day, Ted would be waiting for someone to fart. He had a fascination with body sounds more akin to a 5-year-old than a 15-year-old, end quote. One time when the members were talking about a serious topic, Ted decided to smear cake on a guy's nose. Robert McFadden for the New York Times wrote about other things that made Ted stick out like a sore thumb in math club and in school in general. They all had a passion for devilish pranks, especially explosive ones, and sometimes they mixed compounds of ammonia and iodine that would pop loudly but harmlessly in a classroom, sending up purplish smoke. It was our way of fitting in, showing we could be cool too, a math member said. Mr. Morris recalled that Ted once showed a school wrestler how to make a powerful mini-bomb. It went off one day in a chemistry class, blowing out two windows and inflicting temporary hearing damage on a girl. Everyone was reprimanded, but Teddy was unfazed. He later set off blasts that echoed across the neighborhood and sent garbage cans flying, end quote. According to a childhood almost close friend of Ted's, quote, he was the smartest kid in class. He was just quiet and shy until you got to know him. Once he knew you, he would talk and talk. I tried to get him to go to sock hops, but he always said he'd rather play chess or read a book. End quote. Wanda and Turk tried to get help with these socialization issues from school counselors, but it never seemed to work for Ted. According to his brother, he would go through bouts of depression and isolate in his room, only coming out for dinner, and those behaviors only increased as Ted grew older. Ted wound up skipping another grade in high school and graduated in 1958 at the top of his class while only being just 16 years old. In addition to that, he was accepted to Harvard and one of five graduates to receive a scholarship. For his first-generation Polish immigrant parents, Ted's achievements was everything they could ever hope for. David Kaczynski was in fourth grade when his brother departed for a top Ivy League school, and he recalled that memory in his memoir. Perhaps that moment was the beginning of the end for Ted. He might have been ready for the academic challenges of a place like Harvard, but he was not ready developmentally or psychologically. In retrospect, 
our parents' one serious mistake was to send him away from home at such an early age. Mastery of learning, which Ted surely had, had little to do with mastery of life or self, but perhaps a genetic flaw or predisposition to mental illness would have taken Ted down eventually in any case." End quote. College can be overwhelming for anyone, but it was true especially for a 16-year-old with no social skills. Ted didn't join any clubs or attend any events. He struggled with hygiene, and mostly kept to himself while focusing on his studies. But yet still, he failed to make honors lists, only earning average grades, which I'm sure average at Harvard is still above average, but anyways. During his freshman year, he lived in a dorm with six other students, most of which only remembered how filthy his room was and how loudly he played his trombone. One former roommate recalled, quote, Ted's room had a good view of the river, but I never saw anybody live in such an unkempt place. In some places, the papers and such were a foot deep. That disturbed me, that someone could live in such filth. The worst part was when it began to smell. Maybe it was rancid milk. Another man recalled, quote, He was intensely introverted. He wouldn't allow us to know him. I never met anybody like him who was as extreme in avoiding socialization. He would almost run to his room to avoid a conversation if one of us tried to approach him. End quote. When Ted did come home for the summer, David recalled his brother holing up in his room, listening to classic music and folk music, while expressing hatred for pop culture at the time like rock and roll and television. Ted Kaczynski's sophomore year at Harvard was the most notable because of his participation in a controversial and disturbing psychological experiment. It starts with a man named Henry A. Murray. Murray was a renowned psychologist who pioneered early studies of personality tests and psychological assessments. He headed a research center named after him and worked alongside the United States government to study the mind of Adolf Hitler. Murray also assisted the CIA in screening its agents. So this very powerful psychologist eventually conducted a study at Harvard University, and Ted Kaczynski volunteered to participate. Brian Dunleavy for History.com explained what these students endured. The experiment enlisted 22 Harvard students to write a detailed essay in which they summarized their worldview and personal philosophy. Then the harsh aspects of the experiment began. After submitting their essays, each of the students was seated in front of bright lights, wired to electrodes, and subjected to what Murray himself described as vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive interrogations, during which members of his research team would attack the student subjects' ideals and beliefs, as gleaned from their essays. The goal was to assess the value of interrogation techniques used by law enforcement and national security agents in the field." End quote. The study was eventually heavily criticized by other leading psychologists who considered it inhumane and unethical. According to one evolutionary psychologist, Murray's experiment violated the main ethical principles outlined by the American Psychological Association. He wrote that subjects like Kaczynski were, quote, incompletely informed about the nature of the experiment and were tricked or coerced into remaining in the experiment. Given that the procedures were designed to quote-unquote break enemy agents and render them so damaged that they would be operationally useless, it is reasonable to expect they would have the same consequences for vulnerable young people who did not have specialized training to resist interrogation. End quote. So, imagine writing, at the age of 17, an essay about your core beliefs and values in life, everything you're most sure about and passionate about. You're then strapped to a chair with instruments measuring your heart and brain activity, while someone more educated and sophisticated, who's been trained to do this, who's studied your essay for hours, comes in to interrogate and belittle everything about your perspective of the world, basically manipulating your thoughts, and some have even said bordered on mind control. 
And then you're forced to relive that experience over and over again by watching video of your reaction to this entire process. Now imagine doing that a couple hours a week for three years, and in total, around 200 hours. That was the reality for Ted Kaczynski and 21 other students. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly how this study affected him, because the Henry Murray Institute has released barely any information about it, and I'm sure they decided to keep their test results even more private once people discovered the Unabomber was one of their test subjects. Despite all the speculation about how this experiment affected Ted, he rejected the idea that it led him to become a serial bomber. Decades later, when asked why he kept taking part in this unethical study, Ted responded, quote, I wanted to prove that I could take it, that I couldn't be broken. And he would actually look back fondly at his time at Harvard, at one point writing, quote, Something that I had been needing all along without knowing it, namely, hard work requiring self-discipline and strenuous exercise of my abilities. I thrived on it. Feeling the strength of my own will, I became enthusiastic about willpower. It was also during this time at Harvard that Ted began fantasizing about living a primitive life and breaking away from normal society. However, that desire wasn't strong enough yet because he continued his education at Harvard, graduating in 1962 with a degree in mathematics. In the fall of that year, he moved to Ann Arbor to begin five more years of study at the University of Michigan. And while at Harvard, Ted blended into the pack. In Michigan, his achievements in math really stood out. One professor recalled, quote, While most of us were just trying to learn how to arrange logical statements into coherent arguments, Ted was quietly solving open problems and creating new mathematics. It was as if he could write poetry while the rest of us were trying to learn grammar. Kaczynski's writings were published in numerous academic journals, and just like the rest of his life prior to university, he only focused on his studies and had virtually no social life or friends. At the beginning of summer in 1966, a year before earning his doctorate, Ted experienced a gender identity crisis. He felt, quote, intense and persistent sexual excitement involving fantasies of being a female, and at one point was convinced that he wanted to undergo an operation. This is how Will described Kaczynski's recollection of that time. Quote, he was aware that gaining authorization would require a psychiatric referral. That fall, he went to see a psychiatrist at the University Health Service to begin the process, but while in the waiting room, he lost his nerve. The idea of revealing his desire to the doctor filled him with anxiety and humiliation. He managed to meet with the psychiatrist, but he failed to disclose the true purpose of the meeting, claiming instead that he feared he could be drafted into the military should his deferment status be dropped, end quote. For context, at this point, the Vietnam War was ongoing, and young men like Ted were being drafted, but because he was a student and part-time teacher's assistant, he was able to defer from the draft. Whale continues, quote, Ted admitted his failures to impart his true intentions left him feeling anxious, humiliated, angry, and ashamed, and he flagged this day as a turning point in his life, end quote. And this is what Kaczynski wrote in one of his journals about that moment. As I walked away from the building afterwards, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do, and I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. I thought I wanted to kill that psychiatrist because the future looked utterly empty to me. I felt I wouldn't care if I died, and so I said to myself, why not really kill the psychiatrist and anyone else whom I hate. What is important is not the words that ran through my mind, but the way I felt about them. What was entirely new was the fact that I really felt I could kill someone. My very hopelessness had liberated me because I no longer cared about death. 
I no longer cared about consequences, and I said to myself that I really could break out of my rut in life and do things that were daring, irresponsible, criminal. End quote. After earning his doctorate in mathematics, Ted accepted a teaching position at the University of California, Berkeley, in 1967. At 25 years old, he became the youngest assistant professor of mathematics in the school's history, but his legacy was short-lived. Just two years in, Ted suddenly resigned from his position, without ever explaining why. This was a relief to the undergrad students he taught, though, who all apparently disliked him. The reason Ted Kaczynski suddenly quit his cushy job has never been figured out for certain, but one thing that may have pushed him to break free from society is a French writer who authored The Technological Society in 1954. From the summaries I've read about this book, basically this author is questioning if society has gone too far with technology and industrialization, and that humans constantly pushing towards maximum efficiency and materials will lead us down a much darker path than we anticipated, and it will force us only to isolate more from nature and intimate, authentic connections that humans desperately require. At the end of the Ford, the author gives the reason behind his writing, after stating he's not pessimistic about this technological evolution. The purpose is to arouse the reader to an awareness of technological necessity and what it means. It is a call to the sleeper to awake. The author also questions capitalism and consumerism, and whether or not this is actually leading to humans living in worse conditions. The machine so characteristic of the 19th century, made an abrupt entrance into society which, from the political, institutional, and human points of view, was not made to receive it, and has had to put up with it as best he can. Men now live in conditions that are less than human. Consider the concentration of our great cities, the slums, the lack of space, of air, of time, the gloomy streets, and the shallow lights that confuse night and day. Think of our dehumanized factories, our unsatisfied senses, our working women, our estrangement from nature. Life in such an environment has no meaning. Consider our public transportation, in which man is less important than a parcel. Our hospitals, in which he is only a number. Yet we call this progress. And the noise, that monster boring into us at every hour of the night without respite. It is useless to rail against capitalism. Capitalism did not create our world. The machine did. End quote. Just a reminder, this book was published in 1957, and Ted Kaczynski was reading it roughly 10 years later, while consumerism is continuing to explode. This book actually had such a significant impact on him that he had read it several times, and even wrote letters to the author in appreciation of his work. At some point, Ted also wrote an essay that aligned with that author's view about technology, but Ted took it much, much further. Whale summarizes this essay by writing, quote, he argued that this never-ending push for scientific and technological progress was wrong and would bring about the end of individual liberties. In Ted's view, society's power to control individuals was quickly expanding and would ultimately make it impossible for men and women to follow their own paths. He wrote about propaganda, educational guiding of children's emotional development, operant conditioning, and quote, direct physical control of emotions via electrodes and cheminrodes. Ted proposed founding an organization dedicated to stopping federal aid to scientific research, thereby preventing the ceaseless extension of society's powers. In a journal entry from the early 70s, Ted himself wrote, quote, Through superhuman computers and mind control, there simply will be no place for a rebellious person to hide, and my kind of people will vanish forever from the earth. So, remember how last week I said this was not going to be a two-part episode? Unfortunately, I wrote too damn much, and I'm an old woman now. I don't want to be up until 
5am editing this, so this will have to be a two-part episode. Please forgive me. But on the bright side, I can add even more to next week's episode, which will be even longer than I anticipated. If you're a Patreon member, you'll get part two earlier the next Thursday, along with a bunch of other bonus stuff. And to make it up to the people that listened this far in the episode, if you planned on purchasing one of my stickers, use the code SORRY81 for a dollar off of your purchase. That's S-O-R-R-Y and then the number 81, because this is episode 81. Before I go, I do want to give a shout out to the new Patreon members. Thank you so much to Holly L, Jonah J, Natalia R, Sean M, Miriam C, Missy, Brittany M, Briar R, and Bailey A. Thank you all so much for becoming Patreon members. Patreon members also will get a dollar off of their purchase if you just check one of my more recent posts about it. And if you're a six-month member on Patreon, you get a free sticker automatically. So if you haven't messaged me your name and address yet and you're a six-month member, make sure to do that so you can get a free sticker. All right, that's it for this week's episode, and don't forget to tune in next week for part two to the Unabomber case. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.